is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. From 1978 to 1981, the South Hill rapist, who disguised himself like a jogger, raped, assaulted, groped, and flashed dozens of women across one posh Spokane, Washington neighborhood. After a car belonging to his father, Gordon, was spotted illegally parked at a junior high running track at the time one of the rapes took place, it was traced back to his son, Frederick Harlan Coe. This connection, along with strong identifications of Coe from many of those attacked, resulted in his arrest for the South Hill rapes. And though it seemed to be an open and shut case, the crimes of Fred Coe would later be brought back to court again and again and again. Fred Coe had a release on bail available to him, but both he and his parents, Gordon and Ruth, lacked the funds to bond him out, so he sat in jail at Spokane Police Headquarters. One evening after work, Jay Williams, a deeply religious man and realtor, though not a terrible one like Fred, and Coe's best friend since childhood visited him in jail. The visitation room was like the hundreds you've seen in movies and on television, with dingy white tile floors and telephone handsets used to speak between the glass partition booths. Jay sat across the glass from Fred. They picked up the phones and Fred began speaking, claiming his innocence of this or any rape. Jay agreed, but his gut was whispering something different. Then Fred said they couldn't use the phone for the next portion of their visit because the calls were monitored. Fred then unfolded and pressed a note written in all caps against the glass. Quote, Go to police. Do not refer to me as eccentric. Tell them you and I were trying to catch South Hill Rapist. Say that you were my decoy and I followed you in car. Fred took that note away and showed Jay another. Quote, You were wearing a dress. Sometimes you were jogging. We used you as a decoy because you're slight in build and could pass as a woman. Tell police you were part of my anti-rape program all along. <laughs> Tell them you were with me on morning of Feb 5 and I couldn't be the rapist. Do you understand? Implying he just took it upon himself to start a rape-stopping like group. A neighborhood watch of sorts. Yep, he's smarter than I thought, I will say. That's actually a plausible storyline from that time frame. Yeah, I that's like. true. That's true. It could uh, introduce reasonable doubt, right? Exactly. Yeah. If if done properly, if you're if the person you're coaching can think on their feet, yeah, or is like fully on board with it. But at the same time, that's bold move to yeah. be writing that down there in prison or jail, rather. Hmm. Jay nodded and continued reading. In the note, Fred claimed his arrest was a frame job, and since police and prosecutors were playing dirty, he would respond in kind. Then, Coe asked for a monumental favor. Quote, I have a dildo and a sweater that have to be disposed of. The police might find them and claim they're the tools of a rapist. Hardly. But the whole thing is innocuous. The note included the address to a vacant house Fred had access to when he was working as the worst realtor in Spokane, and it had been for sale for months. Quote, Get rid of them for me. 
I hid the dildo and sweater under the stairwell. Use your lockbox key. Get them. The remainder of the note detailed that Jay should ditch the sweater in a goodwill drop box and then cut the dildo into a hundred pieces and disperse them in vacant lots over time. At the bottom of the note, quote, you may talk freely to my parents. Do you understand? Unquote. Jay picked up the phone and said he did. Fred thanked him for coming. That night, Jay, heading home and begging God for guidance, drove past the vacant house Fred said contained the hidden dildo stash and decided to knock on the door when he saw a light on in a window. The woman who answered informed Jay that they had taken it off the market and moved back in a few days previous. Uh-oh. Whoops. A little late. Jay was stymied by the situation he found himself in. His loyalties to both his best friend and God were at war with one another, and having no next move, he met with Fred's father, Gordon. They spoke in the lobby of Spokane's grandest hotel, the ritzy and historic Davenport. Without getting into detail, he told Gordon that Fred had asked him to destroy some incriminating items. Gordon responded that he wasn't aware of that situation. The end. No further comment from him. Jay said, okay, well tell Fred they're back in the house if you see him before I do. Gordon said, will do, and later in the conversation, asserted Fred's innocence, citing all the evidence he had seen, but failed to share with Jay. Several nights later, Jay returned to the now-occupied home. Walking to the front door, he prayed, quote, Lord, it's up to you. When I knock on that door, I'm not going to give those people any false reasons. If you intend for the police to have the dildo, then let them have it. Thy will be done. Unquote. He knocked and reminded the homeowner that he was a realtor and had been by a few days ago. He asked if it would be okay for him to look around the house, even though it was no longer for sale. She said, come on in, but would it be okay if my husband and I didn't join you because we're watching the TV? Dumbfounded, Jay thanked them and began looking around. That is unbelievable. Unbelievable. I can't even imagine. I mean, I guess they had had their house on the market. It's early 80s, so you don't have internet so you're not you know it's not like you're just popping on zillow and, and going you've to been the house. used to having realtors in and out of your house probably showing it but to just have one dude there and be like yeah we're just gonna be downstairs watching tv though. i mean maybe he was familiar enough that they didn't see it that's wild as suspicious but wow no thank you when he knew he was alone jay dug around in the storage area under a stairwell he found the sweater which was more like a top worn for running wrapped around a large object it was Fred's dildo, and it was much larger than Jay expected, the size of a baguette. He had forgotten to bring his briefcase along on the heist, and had nowhere to stow the thing, so he slipped it under his arm, attempting to obscure it with his sport coat. As he reached the front door, the woman of the house popped out and asked him if he got a good look. Jay said yeah, and thanked them for their time. Relieved, but not entirely, Jay took the long way back to his car to shake off anyone possibly following him and stuffed the dildo under the front seat when he got inside. He knew that cutting the dildo into a hundred pieces and disposing of them piecemeal was going to take forever. So before heading home, Jay wrapped the giganto phallus in paper bags and jammed it as far as he could into a full dumpster. In the time before Co was identified as the South Hill rapist, Jay and Fred were in a grocery store, probably Rose Hours, standing in line to check out. Jay glanced over at a checkstand newspaper rack featuring South Hill Rapist headlines. He called the rapist despicable and said he would, quote, end him right then, unquote, 
if he were the one to catch him in the act. Fred responded that the comments were out of line because Jay was a religious person. Murder was against his beliefs. Jay, taken aback by his friend's reaction, thought, quote, Wow, that's the most peculiar thing I've ever heard. Reading a list of psychopathic personality disorder traits is like going through a greatest hits of Fred Coe's life. Quote, Pleasure-seeking, poor school record, impaired sense of responsibility, can't accept rules and regulations, no sense of remorse, does not learn by mistakes, poor judgment, repeats errors, no insight, poor personal habits, self-discipline lacking, procrastination, stealing, lying, no warmth in personal relations, not able to feel guilt or pure consciousness, blames others, makes excuses, rationalizes, jealous, aloof and cold, unreliable or manipulative, a poor lifestyle, unquote. Coe, a self-professed model citizen, was eventually charged with five additional rapes, to which he pled innocent in March of 1981. After his plea, he was released on bond, $35,000, which his parents had scraped up by selling valuables. Fred Coe, not a lawyer, plotted his own defense, which was rooted in the denial of any wrongdoing ever on any level. The trial began on July 20, 1981. The jury comprised of Seattleites and presided over by Judge George Shields. The prosecution was led by Donald Brockett. Fred Coe, acting as part of his defense team alongside public defense attorneys Julie Twyford and George Giggler, showed up to court in tailored three-piece suits, his hair blow-dried to perfection, and makeup on his face. He was going for lawyer chic, but looked more like a college student in his first play. He's vain, is what I'm saying. Both Gordon and Ruth Coe testified on their son's behalf, claiming that during the period the six rapes charged had occurred, Fred had eaten breakfast early every morning at their home and then returned in the evening, every evening, for a lengthy dinner. They also claimed that during the time of the rapes, she and Fred had been doing their own vigilante South Hill rapist stakeouts, and that was why his car had been in close proximity to the site of several rapes. I can visualize the jury box stacked with 12 purse-lipped faces after hearing that. From 1975 to 1976, Fred lived and worked in Las Vegas with his wife Jennifer, her sister, and the sister's young son. The boy, 13 when interviewed, detailed an interminable gauntlet of abuse and sexual assault perpetrated by Fred Coe. Coe would shower with the boy, stretching his penis, forcing soap into his rectum, and saying, Oh, nothing, dear, when his then-wife would ask what was happening in the bathroom after the boy would scream. Coe threatened to send the boy, who was a first grader going into second, to a fishing-slash-torture camp where giant squids would bite off his penis. At a carnival, the boy was forced to ride the most intense rides until he threw up, and another time, Coe forced him to drink beer until he became sick, and then had to remain wearing his own vomit-soaked shirt until bedtime. The boy was bare-bottom spanked with a board and belt up to as many as 50 times, and was hit so frequently with objects that, quote, all the sticks in the closet finally got all broken to pieces, unquote. To further terrorize the boy, Coe, who called the boy a big sissy, would throw him into a seven-foot-deep swimming pool, knowing he was afraid of water. The boy said Jennifer once used a knife to hold Fred at bay, and one night the couple were fighting, and the boy heard Jennifer say, quote, walk away, asshole, and then the sound of Fred striking her. He's even worse than I 
imagined mm-hmm. with the torture. I mean, that definitely pushes him up that gradients of evil scale. And there's something, too, with the carnival that just feels, I mean, it's all really disgusting to hear and so upsetting. And there's something about that that's extra dark, I guess, because it's supposed to be a fun place and supposed to be mm. a kid place and supposed He's to be ruining that for yeah that child. literally taking away all of that childhood innocence on like every level and creating a trigger for him mm-hmm. for the rest of his life mm-hmm. yeah it's it's torturous emotionally and yeah. physically which yeah. is kind of i feel like a little more rare i yeah you know you you think people focus more on one than the other that just shows how awful he is mm-hmm. and that was a really easy way for him to publicly violate somebody yeah yeah all the time oh yeah i Secretly. didn't even think about yeah. that it's one thing to be doing the sexual abuse at home oh, home in the shower which hidden. is awful and horrendous and and you know the wife maybe choosing to remain ignorant or something but yeah to be out in public then maybe that's what it is that feels extra He's disgusting getting a thrill from it yeah is that he and and for a child you know that's part for me that's part of why i don't go on big rides sometimes is because i'm scared of throwing up it's like it has like an inherent embarrassment to it, you know, especially for a kid. Yeah, he's like, humiliating him and getting mm-hmm. a thrill off of it. Yep. It's disgusting. Yeah. He, he really targets him in every way possible. Yeah. Fred Coe also took the stand on his own behalf, and his lies weren't exactly the best. For example, he denied ever owning items like gloves, beanies, and oven mitts. Well, then he couldn't have done it. He also claimed he was away in Seattle during the time of the first six South Hill rapes an account backed up only by his parents and some questionable, at best, phone records. Coe's girlfriend, Virginia Perham, also known as Jeannie, testified that on the morning of Friday, March 6, 1981, four days before Fred's arrest, she had woken up early to find him washing a pair of stained oven mitts. She also testified that Fred owned a dildo, quote, close to two feet high, unquote. Quote, she also said there was a moment in December 1980 when she feared Coe was the South Hill rapist. She'd just read a newspaper description of an unsuccessful rape. It just came together. Maybe he was out there raping women. Unquote. Virginia had met Fred while working in a laundromat in December of 1978 and began dating in May the next year. While they lived together, Jeannie said Fred would often enter a room with his huge dildo positioned by his crotch. She was also familiar with many items of clothing detailed to her by police from witness and victim statements. Items like Fred's gray jogging clothes, red jacket, and oven mitts. One morning, she had woken up early and discovered Fred washing the oven mitts, with no explanation as to why. Virginia also described a pair of black gloves Fred owned, quote, noting that they eventually became more deteriorated and actually had one of the fingers hanging off. Not too long before he was arrested, he almost always wore black leather gloves, even during the summertime. I just can't imagine being in the same home with someone that I might have that concern with. Right. There was I, like a, a huge imbalance in their relationship, and she desperately sure. wanted to be with him, and he oh. was a very charming, you know, psychopath. And she probably talked herself out of a lot of these Absolutely. suspicions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't do it. He Everybody has that. that. That's a popular jogging outfit. Yeah. I can't He's say weird. anything. He I wears the gloves all the time anyway. I can't say anything because he'll be mad about it. And look at how he treated a child. I can only imagine that there were 
abusive levels of abuse within that relationship. I don't know if there's any proof of, of documentation of that, but to some degree, I'm sure whether it was verbal or just controlling or whatever he was yeah, doing. Definitely, definitely verbally and like psychologically. Yeah. yeah. He would kind of like just badger her about things until she would give in. In the back of her mind, though, she had to have known. That is too much coincidence, I think. Well, and probably part of the verbal abuse would be making her feel stupid or questioning. For even asking, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. then it's like, well, how can I trust my instinct? I'm such an idiot. Because she's so used to being gaslit. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. And I imagine, again, the, the suspicion alone you could talk yourself out of, I think. Yeah. Well, and, and there's the embarrassment, too, that shouldn't exist, but that people um, kind of put on themselves of, how did I not see it? How did I end up in a relationship with a, mm-hmm. a monster? You know, which... You didn't do anything. You're just there. You can't help what this person is hiding and lying about. Yeah. Man, that scares that scares me. Just yeah. the thought of somebody having a, a some sort of secret like mm-hmm. that. Type A blood was found at several rape scenes. Other bodily fluids collected as evidence were tested and came back with a present secretor status. A secretor is a person in the ABO blood group whose blood antigens are present in other bodily fluids like semen, urine, breast milk, tears, and saliva. Blood antigens are, quote, any substance to which the immune system can respond, unquote. Fred Coe was a secretor, as are 80% of people. All he had to do was be a non-secretor, and he couldn't even do that correctly. (laughs) Quote, the laboratory found human semen on both the underpants and genes of the victim, which were typed and determined to be blood type A. The victim's blood type is O, and Mr. Ko has blood type A, unquote. In a pre-trial interview, Fred reported he'd had two head injuries in his younger life, resulting in as many concussions. The jury, unimpressed by his grandiose attorney role play, the shaky testimony from his parents, and his utter denial of facts, convicted Fred Ko on four counts of first-degree rape on July 29, 1981. Asked by a reporter if he had doubts regarding Coe's guilt, Lieutenant Gene McGogan, head of the Special Rape Squad who arrested Fred, cut the question off with, quote, Oh, there's never been anything close, unquote. Assistant Prosecutor Steve Matthews called Frederick Coe, quote, A man who puts a face on things and is perfectly comfortable tearing off one face and putting another face on, even if they're mutually exclusive. Whatever suits his needs is what works for him, unquote. During the sentencing phase, Carl Maxey, a civil rights activist during the 1960s and 70s, as well as the first black man to graduate from Gonzaga Law School in 1951 and a former champion boxer, joined Fred Coe's defense team. Maxey ran in similar Spokane social circles and had known the Coe's for years. Quote, So Maxey arranged for Dr. Robert A. Wetzler, a well-known psychiatrist in the field of sexual psychopathy, to interview Coe one more time. This time, Coe told Wetzler that he had committed one of the rapes and would be willing to accept treatment for his sexual problems. Even then, Coe was coy about his admission. He told the psychiatrist he was jealous of the South Hill rapist and had committed a copycat rape. Still, when Maxie put Wetzler on the stand during the sentencing hearing, Wetzler dropped the bombshell. Coe had confessed and was begging for treatment. Unquote. Just after midnight on August 17, 1981, Judge Shields announced Fred Coe's sentencing live on TV, saying, 
Quote, I have worried. I have been very concerned. I have thought. I have read. I have researched. And I have prayed. Unquote. Before handing down Fred prison terms of 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, and life. Shields also denied a defense request to have Coe committed to a mental institution in lieu of prison. Fred Coe was instead sent to Washington State Penitentiary. Later that same day, Julie Twyford, one of the members of Coe's defense team, was arrested for drunk driving after putting her car into the Spokane River. There is a photo available on our blog of her arrest that shows you everything you need to know about dealing with the Coe family. Friend and dildo procurer, Jay Williams, paused in his reminiscences. Quote, Funny thing, when Fred lived in California, he used to tell people he was from Spokane, and nobody knew where Spokane was. So he started saying he was from Seattle, and that didn't work much better. But he found that everyone seemed familiar with Walla Walla, maybe from all the old jokes. So he started telling people he was from there. Now he is. Unquote. Why do you think that is? Because of the penitentiary? Yeah. I guess. That's like well, I think such it's sort of like non-existent place for me. It's like uh, Kalamazoo or yeah. Rancho yeah. Cucamonga. And I feel like there were jokes like almost limerick or something about Take Walla Take the slow Walla. train to Walla Walla yeah. or something. Rich Jennings, a plainclothes policeman who had worked as part of the special rape squad, was brought back into the orbit of the Coes in November of 1981. He was teamed up with Lieutenant Lynn Howerton, the head of ADVIN, Administrative Vice, Intelligence, and Narcotics, a unit answerable only to a deputy chief. On November 2, 1981, the Spokane County Prosecutor's Office received an anonymous phone call regarding efforts Ruth Coe, Fred's mother, had made to acquire a hitman from Spokane's criminal underworld. The anonymous tip was corroborated by a massage parlor operator named Violet Cooper, who reported that during a visit, when she made a quip about needing mafia money to pay her bills, Ruth Coe asked if she really knew anyone in the mob, as she was in the market for a hitman. Jennings and Howerton met Violet at her home on November 16, 1981, and after speaking with her, she agreed to make a phone call to the Coe house. Listening in, the policeman heard Violet ask, quote, Are you still in the market for doing harm to someone? Unquote. Ruth Coe's response, quote, Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. Unquote. Violet asked who she wanted killed, and Ruth mentioned her son's prosecuting attorney, Donald Brockett, and the case's judge, George Shields. Three days later, Officer Jennings dialed the co-residence and spoke to Ruth, saying he was Terry the Hitman. They set a meeting for 4.30 p.m. at a shopping center. Ruth arrived at the appointed time and approached Terry, who was sitting in his undercover vehicle. The conversation was being recorded and the microphone picked up Ruth's voice when she leaned into the open window. Officer, just tell me what you want. Ruth Coe. Well, uh, and that judge. I'd like him gone. Dead. And I'd like both of them dead, really. Except that with that brocket, I felt that he's a man about 46 or 47, and he has been so filthy, and my feeling for him is that I would love to see him just an adulpated vegetable that had to be cared for, that his family had to take care of for the rest of his life. I mean diapers and all the rest of it. He wanted 42 years of my son's life gone. I'd like to see him sit 42 years in, um, 
as a baby, I suppose, how you clobber them. That could be the way it had come out. So dead is great, but I do think he should suffer. Even if I paid for this in any way, you know, if they caught me in any way, I would, uh, know it was worth it. Unquote. The next afternoon, Ruth found out just how much it was worth when she was arrested after handing Jennings a down payment of $500 in cash, with the remainder of the money said to be coming from, quote, a piece of jewelry that was my mother's that I dearly loved and had all my life since she's gone, unquote. Before the arrest, she said to Rich Jennings, quote, We've lived a normal life, and they crucified us. My son is no rapist. He's a very attractive man, as you are. He has to run the other way to keep from being raped himself, as I know you probably do, unquote. In the jail's booking area, a friendly clerk recognized Ruth and asked her what she was there for. Lieutenant Lynn Howerton, Ruth's escort to the lockup, said it was up to her, and Ruth responded, for trying to kill the judge and prosecutor. Gordon Co., whom Ruth said on tape knew about the hit and provided the cash for the first payment, called it, quote, a clear case of entrapment. They could have just informed me that she had gotten this idea in her head, and we could have seen that she got help, unquote. January 8, 1982, Ruth Co., wearing a jet black wig, pleaded innocent to two charges of solicitation to commit first-degree murder. Attorney Carl Maxey was Baxey for Ruth Coe's trial, a non-jury one, meaning the judgment would be judged only by the judge, who in this case was Judge Robert Bibb. Maxey's defense was that Ruth was cuckoo bananas. He had sent a psychologist to interview Ruth in jail, who later called her a sick woman to the press. Fred Coe, under stress from Mother Bear's arrest and forthcoming trial, compounded by harassment from fellow inmates who did not take kindly to his kind of criminal, was put on suicide watch. It was said Fred and Ruth Coe had more of a boyfriend-girlfriend rather than a mother-son relationship. They had frequent explosive arguments, and Ruth seemed to have complete control of Fred. They were obsessed with each other, and he was compelled to bend to her every whim, which stoked an ever-expanding ember of rage inside him. Ruth or Mamie Ruth Enfield Coe, as she was born on June 30, 1920, was a nearly lifelong resident of Spokane. Her father ran a dry goods store, and her mother was a housewife. Ruth, also described as, quote, eccentric, married newspaper reporter Gordon Coe in 1945. A person of refined taste, she spent a fortune on clothes. A woman whose child had gone to school with Fred Coe said, quote, she'd wear heels and stockings to a potato race, unquote. Ruth, who had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, of which she was not managing, once lashed out during a road trip, raking her fingers across the cheek of Fred's then-wife Jennifer, which left a noticeable scar. Also fond of nicknames, she called Fred Freddy Co., Ricky, Coco, and Son. She was a former model and charm school teacher who spoke in a fake, faltering Southern accent, and who only came alive socially when speaking about her children. The most notable thing about Ruth Coe is that she was petite in stature, with dark hair and light eyes, quite similar to many of the South Hill rapist victims. When the trial special prosecutor, Mary Kay Barbieri's opening statement, included that Ruth Coe wanted someone made into a vegetable, a young clerk stopped writing notes and stared at Mrs. Coe. Barbieri went on to list Ruth's only motivations as hatred, and revenge. On the witness stand, 
Policeman Rich Jennings called her demeanor, quote, calm, very businesslike, very bitter, very revengeful, unquote, during the murder solicitation. Spokane's NBC affiliate, KHQ6, obtained police recordings of Ruth Coe's solicitation attempt, and though they were ordered by the judge not to play the tapes on air, played they were indeed. Afterwards, Ruth Coe had to be hospitalized, pausing the trial for several days. Barbieri's closing statement summed it up in a nice little package. Quote, Determination is what you hear on those tapes. Her intention is stated over and over again. She intended that they be killed, and it was a mere accident that they hadn't been. It is a stark reality in this society that murder for hire happens. At her sentencing on Friday, May 28, 1982, Ruth, quote, seemed to sag into her seat as though the force of gravity were stronger here than back home, unquote. She was found guilty as charged and received an absolutely infuriating sentence. 20 years in prison, suspended, followed by one year in whichever county jail she liked the most, then 10 years of probation. I'm sorry, whatever she liked the most, she got to choose? Yep. Also, what does that mean, suspended, like, you don't someday do it. we'll give you 20 years? No, it's on your record, but you don't ever serve it. And you would think a judge of all people would be like, you can't hire people to kill judges. You're getting 20 years yeah, or whatever. Yeah, you think you'd want to set an example, right? Like, you can't do that. It's very odd. I think the attorney, her defense attorney, Maxie, was able to paint her as a very damaged yeah. woman who was frail and not on medication. Well, she and, needed to be hospitalized. Yeah. Like, there was a lot. Which she play. was unwell, but you also know the difference between right and wrong. So and I think it really also helped, of course, that she was a prominent person of Spokane, which you know. for them being so powerful and and he's the editor and he's hiding the story and all of this stuff. But they didn't have the money to bail him out. Yeah. The first time. Like, what's that? Interesting. Anyway, I guess prominent doesn't always mean rich. She began serving her time at the Ponderay County Jail on the Washington, Idaho border before spending, quote, most of the year-long sentence on work release, unquote. Attorney Carl Maxey was credited with the unbelievably light sentencing. Ruth Coe died on March 16, 1996. She had moved to the Las Vegas suburb of Henderson, Nevada after her release from jail, dragging Gordon along with her. Her cause of death was emphysema and other illnesses. Interviewed for an article on Ruth Coe's death, George Shields said, quote, these are the kind of things you just as soon seen fade away, unquote. Jack Olson, author of the book Son, A Psychopath and His Victims, which I read to research the case, called Ruth a, quote, theatrical, homicidal woman who never received the help she needed, the very definition of a mixed-up human being, unquote. June 7, 1984, the Washington State Supreme Court overturned Fred's convictions, all four of them. The reason was the use of hypnosis during the investigation, the aim of which was to help both victims and witnesses develop a fuller memory of their events. Police also spoke with John Cockburn, Fred's former brother-in-law. Before the first trial, the Coes asked him to testify about the whole breakfast every morning, dinner every night crap the family had concocted. 
he told them he refused because it was a lie. In December of 84, Jay Williams was interviewed by police, admitting Fred had asked him to retrieve and dispose of the dildo and sweater, and that he, quote, was able to access the dildo and destroy it, unquote. Victims had to testify again at a new trial, which took place in Seattle beginning January 7, 1985. On February 12th, Fred was again convicted for three of the same four rape counts. He received life, plus 55 years. Julie Harmia, who had emblazoned Coe's face into her memory, testified again during his retrial. She was the only woman of the six Coe was charged with raping that had not undergone hypnosis to assess with her statements and recollections. Before the new trial began, Fred Coe was tested using the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, quote, the most widely used and researched clinical assessment tool used by mental health professionals to help diagnose mental health disorders, unquote. During this portion of the evaluation, Fred Coe denied guilt for all of the charged rape counts. Dr. Ronald Page, who conducted the test, further described the South Hill rapes and attacks as, quote, unnecessarily sadistic and undeniably predatory. Mr. Coe appears to have been a sexual predator of seeming consuming preoccupation with his outlet. His actions appear to have been premeditated, aggressive, sadistic, degrading, and possibly repeated in a serial fashion, unquote. Fred Coe was diagnosed as a sexual sadist with borderline personality disorder. On October 1, 1986, Sean O'Brien, 24, a secretary from Kennewick, Washington, became Fred Coe's second wife. The couple briefly exchanged vows, with Sean's sister Connie serving as bridesmaid and an unidentified inmate as their witness. The newly minted Mrs. Coe initially began writing to Fred after reading the book Son, my God. I know. How could you read that book? Yeah. That's unbelievable. And want to be with someone like that. Well. That's upsetting. We know. That's a psychological issue. Yeah, but... I was going to say, like, that, I feel like that should be looked at sometimes uh, because people getting married, you know, it could be the. And they have to approve those weddings. Yeah. And what is that called? The spousal privilege? And it's like, if we have someone that's really mentally unwell on the outside who is now connected to this person on the inside, that could create a dangerous situation. After they were wed, Fred pushed his new wife to take out credit card after credit card with ever-increasing limits. Eventually, she was sending Fred cash advances off of credit. Yikes. They this, oh, I'm sorry. They divorced in 1988. That is uh, very common. I actually have a friend growing up that that happened to her mother. She married an inmate. He sent his son to live with them. The son robbed them. She was in crazy debt filling his his oh, accounts my and gosh. I mean it's horrible. It's they prey on mm -hmm. women, single women usually mm -hmm. parents, single parents. I mean it is horrific. I've, you know, I've watched Love After Lockup. I've seen <laughs> how the romance blossoms. But yeah, I've seen documentaries and stuff where it's like, that's, for some people, that's like their job is that they post photos and they start relationships yep. and then it's just equal across the board and they get money. Why is it allowed? Right? Why is it I get you're in prison. That doesn't mean you're cast off out of the world. But, but there should be some limits to where you can't keep harming people. Exactly. That motherfucker. I really hate this guy. Yeah. 
quote, however, the hypnosis issue still tainted the case. And on January 29, 1988, the Washington State Supreme Court reversed two of the convictions again. The third conviction was upheld. It carried a 25-year sentence. Theoretically, Coe could have been released in four years. But it didn't turn out that way, at least in part because Coe refused to attend any of his parole hearings. What? Unquote. What a moron. <laughs> For someone who thinks he's so smart, concocting these stories, what the hell was he thinking? Yeah, his, his line was, I didn't do any of it, so I never have to do any treatment for it. Just utter denial was his, is his, is his method. Which is the first thing I would think you did it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm sorry. Even somebody who was not guilty and is doing time would do anything they could to get out. Yeah. Anytime I can talk to someone, anytime I can get in front of someone. In 1994, Fred, now 47, was attacked while at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, his throat slashed by an inmate with a self-made knife as Fred spoke on the phone. I guess life's pretty rough when you're a pervert in the clink. Am I right? Am oh, I? you quoting me? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Fred, unfortunately, survived his injuries. Oh, Sorry. No. <laughs> How do you really feel? <laughs> During the summer of 2006, Fred Coe sat for an interview with Dateline NBC in which he defined his mental health as, quote, perfect. At that point, he had never attended a session with a prison counselor. He said that upon his release, he planned to move to France and live with his sister. Uh, so his his uh, time that he had to do, you said 25 or Yeah, 20? 25. So yeah, by the, by the time, yeah, 2006. Okay, so was that a 25 sentence or was that a life sentence? or? How? At the very end, it was just one, one conviction was upheld, and that was 25 years. If he made it 25 years, I would feel really annoyed having to let him out knowing he didn't go to his sessions or try to improve at all. Well. If I were, if I were in prison and oh boy, I didn't do heated. it. I would still take the opportunity to improve myself, you know, use that counseling, get a degree. What yeah. the fuck? I think it just speaks to his arrogance and narcissism of, I'm perfect. I didn't do anything. Mommy loves me. Ugh, gross. And I think as well that he wanted to reoffend. Yeah. Definitely. Well, you think he would have taken the opportunity to get out in four years so he could go do that. He's a walking contradiction, this guy. Yeah, like that one guy said, and he'll he'll put on any face and yeah. rip off another. Yep. Fred's prison term officially ended in 2006. The question then was what to do with a man like Coe, who denied all culpability in the South Hill rapes and attacks, and was nearly certain to reoffend. Fortunately, Washington enacted the Community Protection Act in 1990 and the Sexually Violent Predator Act in 1996, designed to, quote, keep the most dangerous sexually violent predators segregated from society even after their criminal sentences ended. That same year, 2006, an evaluation of Fred Coe was completed according to the Sexually Violent Predator Act by the Washington State End of Sentence Review Committee. Quote, Sex offenders who have completed their criminal sentences, but whom state superior courts defined meet the definition of sexually violent predator, may be civilly committed to the Special Commitment Center for Care, Control, and Custody, 
They remain in the total confinement program, receiving ongoing mental treatment until the court determines that they are ready for placement in a community-supervised living arrangement known as Less Restrictive Alternative. Fred Coe declined to be interviewed for the purpose of this evaluation. Unquote. Shocking. Coe's civil commitment trial began on September 15, 2008, and they went all the way back, beginning with the first defense of Coe's that was on record. It was a night in May 1966. Fred, who was 19 at the time, met a 16-year-old at a dance and later agreed to give her a ride home. He drove into a wooded area, climbed on top of her, and shook her while pinning her down. When he dropped her off in downtown Spokane, the girl wrote down the man's license plate number, through which they identified Fred, but the charges were never pursued. Julie Harmia also testified at the 2008 trial, dragging out those old, painful memories to make sure Coe's cage stayed locked. Sunshine Shelley Monahan testified as well, stating that, quote, Coe once called her from prison and threatened to kill her when he got out, unquote. And, quote, in response to questions by Assistant Attorney General Todd Bowers, Monahan looked directly at the jury and said she was beaten in the face, strangled, and violently raped, unquote. Virginia Parham, Coe's girlfriend during the South Hill rapes, was called to testify, but she never responded to subpoenas and had already left the state. Psychiatrist Robert A. Wetzler testified that in 1981, Coe told him he harbored jealousy toward the South Hill rapist and copied his methods during the one rape he admitted to. This was the rape on February 9, 1981, the one where a young mother was attacked after dropping her baby off with her folks in the early morning, one of the attacks during which the rapist wore oven mitts. Coe also admitted an attempted rape to Dr. Wetzler, the one from December of 1980, when the woman he attacked bit him and maced him in the face. Not at all surprisingly, Coe was declared by the jury to be a, quote, sexually violent predator, a designation that gives the government the power to hold him indefinitely at the Special Commitment Center on McNeil Island, unquote. A major factor in this determination was testimony heard by the jury regarding a sexual conduct violation Fred committed on June 6, 2008, three months before the trial began. A female rehabilitation counselor discovered Coe masturbating in his room when she was doing room checks. When the cone of her flashlight revealed Coe, quote, stroking himself, he made no attempt to cover himself or turn away. Quote, he just looked at me with no expression on his face, unquote. Shelley Monahan was in court to hear the verdict. Speaking outside the courtroom, Shelley, her voice tinged with relief, said, quote, after 29 years, it's finally over. Today, justice has been served, and our community is going to be a lot safer because of it, unquote. In December 2013, Fred Coe, again acting as his own attorney, filed a lawsuit in which, quote, he contends he doesn't belong at the Special Commitment Center, unquote. And in September of 2014, a federal judge in Tacoma, Washington, upheld Coe's conviction, rejecting Fred's claims that he had ineffective counsel during his 2008 trial. A June 1, 1986 newspaper article announced that Spokane's best-known and beloved TV newscaster was moving her weather reporting skills on Spokane's CBS affiliate, KREM, to an NBC affiliate in Sacramento, California. This was also after her fiancé, Kim Mom, a mountain climber, died in an avalanche earlier that year. Sunshine Shelley Monahan, a radio DJ at the time of her attack, had transitioned to TV news, and after working in Seattle and Chicago, made a triumphant return to Spokane TV news 
when she joined the team at KHQ, which is the same station that broadcast recordings of Ruth Coe soliciting a hitman. Shelley, who began her career at age 17, retired in 2014. Quote, The person you see on air is the person you see when the camera is not on. It's not an act. She has the Spokane community in her DNA. Unquote. Shelley said she planned to become a realtor, and probably a great one. She said, quote, Every day, somebody calls me Sunshine Shelley. Unquote. Forty years after the South Hill rapes and attacks ceased, Gonzaga University Law School hosted a symposium regarding the South Hill rapist. During the panel discussion, one of Fred Coe's defense attorneys, Julie Twyford, called it, quote, the case of the century in Spokane, unquote, and said Coe would have been out of prison decades earlier if he hadn't taken his parents' advice to admit to one of the rapes in an attempt to secure hospitalization over serving his time in prison. The symposium included a moment of silence for the South Hill rapist victims and an impact statement written by a victim of Coe's who was 15 at the time she was raped. Fred Coe legally changed his name to Kevin Coe in 1982, perhaps as a way to mask his identity, or maybe, like everyone else in his life, he had decided to give himself a nickname. Kevin Coe, always keeping distant, even from himself, will forever be remembered as the South Hill Rapist. On an excellent episode of Shattered on Investigation Discovery, Jay Williams, Fred's longtime friend, and the Danny Ocean of dildo thieving was interviewed. Quote, I don't know why I see him in my dreams. They're not nightmares. They're just, he's there. Maybe I think it would have been better if he had died. It's kind of sad what we had. And then what it became. Julie Harmia, on Fred Coe's 2008 retrial conviction, which was aided greatly by her testimony, said with a sense of pride, quote, Finally, this little piece of the devil is put away. I kept this son of a gun behind bars. I'm hoping I brought them, the women who could not testify, some peace and some comfort and some feeling of safety. Unquote. Rain is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. Rain created and operates the National Sexual Assault Hotline in partnership with more than 1,000 local sexual assault service providers across the country. Help is available 24 hours a day seven days a week, and can be reached at 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673 or at rainn.org. Is this guy still alive then? Yes. But he, but Have he's you written in the him a letter. No, um, I, I feel like you. Well, you'd probably get, you guys get a better response than me oh, <laughs> for that's sure. True. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just send him. Yeah, just. Uh, well, don't do that. No, no. no I um, don't think so this guy is a monster. Yeah, yeah he's, nothing he's to be said. completely unrepentant. One of the links I have um, in the show notes is a um, a letter he wrote about his, you know, railroading, and it's it's bonkers. But you can see his perspective fully. That's about as much as I want from yeah. him. Um, but yeah, that, that's on the that's on our blog that we have <laughs> that and Josh has never looked at. Never looked at it. <laughs> Hearing the choices that his mother made, it's not surprising that he had given their relationship that I'm sure he had instilled in him 
you know, you are mommy's little yes. perfect angel you and you can do, do no wrong. Mm-hmm. And anyone who says otherwise is just jealous or, you know, coming after you because of who you are or something. Not to take away what he created of himself on his own. Right. She definitely supported this on a pedestal type of mm-hmm. man who can do whatever he wants. Well, and then them being, you know, community members, it's not even so much whether or not you did that or if you need help or to be in prison, but, you know, protect the family name. And of course our son didn't do that. I wonder how many red flags of his childhood were swept under the rug. Like what, uh, yeah. what was happening before he was what, 19 when we yeah. see that on his record? Cause it can't, it didn't come out of nowhere. Yeah. I don't think he just decide to take a teenager out in the woods and, and then eventually become a rapist and a and a child uh, sexual predator and I'm amazed abuser. he didn't kill anyone. Really, yeah, even accidentally, yeah. Mm-hmm. Josh, are you are you worried at some point there's a risk that he would be let out or that? No, I, you know, and it sucks. It's one of those things. I believe that they every year. It's up for a vote. They have to. They have to bring evidence and prove it again. You know, and uh, it, it, I think it can be the same me. stuff. Oh, it's very scary. Yeah. What if there's some change in? I want to say manage, management, but you know, yeah, what I mean? yeah. Like that is scary because he is an example of someone who should not be in public. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think he has any control because he's shown that with, without proper education and treatment, like, how could he have improved just by right. being locked up? You know. I think that's a valid fear. It actually that you saying that made me think of catching Cletus and how they got the new warden. And he's like, nope, we're going to do it this nice way and we're going to work with these people. And, you know, what if someone like that? Yeah. Comes into the picture and is like, no, everyone deserves a chance. And and then he's out. And it's also scary because he was so young going in. It's not like he's 90. If he got out now, he'd be what, 60, almost 60. So, you know, it's not like that's unheard of. Who's approving this to? Is this the Washington Supreme Court? I think he's 75 right now. Oh, okay. Something like that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess he is that much older to where hopefully if he was released, he wouldn't have the physical strength to do this. I don't know. His type of personality, whether or not he's doing something physical, he'd find a way to be abusive to somebody. You yeah, know? that's true. He did some scary things to that child. That poor kid. Yeah, but what a but so brave and I didn't I I, I think I I might have edited it for for length, but the, that that boy who was thirteen when they interviewed him, aggressively wanted to pursue charges, like oh, aggressively. But the statute of limitations had passed. Oh, fuck <sighs> that! But that's not how is that even possible for child abuse? I know. Yeah. I don't think that should be allowed because kids don't even know what things are until they grow up and learn what they are. Mm-hmm. That is horrible. Oh, that makes me irate. You know, it seemed a lot of people were swayed by his charm or intimidation. And so to have this child who had been harmed by him so badly be able to be like, yeah, get this guy. And while it may have helped, like, secure his punishment, I just there's something about him not getting charged for that that rubs me the wrong way in so many cases. Yeah. I don't think statute of limitations should be in place for murder and rape. Yeah. And child sex abuse. Like, that is just. Beyond me, who would think that that's okay? Yeah. I want to see why. So I basically, see he, the proof of he why. He could admit to that. He could say, like, yeah, I did that to that kid, but it was in the 80s. So tough luck. 
Well, and you must, you got to imagine too, okay, you said you think that maybe there were like 30 victims on some level, about? 23, I think, confirmed. Okay. So. But as many, I mean, it's dozens. I I really do think it's like 80 or more. And it's in like a small town. One neighborhood. So imagine the odds of being in jail with someone related to someone that was attacked are probably pretty high. That's a good point. That would be scary. That ripple effect of cousins and neighbors and whoever in your family, your sister, and you learn that that's the guy and he just ends up in your prison. Yeah. I I mean, I would imagine the odds would be that, that someone there knew or that they had a connection to him. I also really hate the idea of him being allowed to be in the special confinement program on McNeil Island when he's not, I mean, he is, I didn't say this, he's not participating in anything still. Right. So he's just being housed there. That should be a requirement to get these special things. Yeah, so why just send him back to jail then? Yeah, I guess so. But they won't. I mean, they need some sort of law. I know, the sentencing is done and... Oh, but it's so frustrating. I mean, we're honestly lucky that that's in place that keeps Yeah, there. thank goodness that's there. Otherwise, they really, their hands would have been tied. And they would have said, he served his time. Now we'll just have to kind of keep an eye on him for I'm when like, the next thing happens and maybe put him away for longer. It just reminds me, and I know I've said this in previous cases, how much I disagree with statute of limitation laws. I understand it's basically trying to discourage false memories or whatever, unreliable witnesses. But I feel like the the cases that we hear about, they're not unreliable. And yes, he was a kid, but you remember that shit. I remember things from when I was one years old because they were impactful. Right. And if you're a good enough detective, prosecutor, you know, every, all everyone that's involved, it shouldn't be an issue. I mean, yeah. it's. I know it's hard because it's hard to go back forty years and find documentation and witnesses. Yeah, and they want things like DNA and things and like that, but recordings and things. But, but I mean, at this point, though, if you look back thirty years, that's the nineties. I mean, we're almost caught up to technology to where like everything for you know where where everything for everyone that's alive will be digital, and so it's like we're not that far away from that happening. Yeah, why can't we extend that? Especially for rape. That's it should be reviewed. Child uh, and children in particular. Yes. Um, Josh, did he pursue like in a like a different kind of court case, like sue him for what he did to him? No, I don't think there was ever any anything like that. No. God, I just yeah. I want to like. I mean, I imagine like him. suing him civilly would get you nothing, right? I mean, I mean, just yeah. to have some sort of guilty verdict yeah. is enough for me. Like. Yeah. Even if it's a $10 gift card, you know, just to feel like he did this. God, I'm so fixated on it. $10 gift card. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just like, right. what the fuck? Yeah. There actually are, I mean, the good news is there are some groups that are working to change statute of limitations. Yeah, it just depends on the state. Yeah. Because, you know, the states that aren't going to pass that. Right. They're, they exist. Hmm. Washington's pretty good about that stuff. Like, I feel like a lot of people hate that they abolished the death penalty, but I feel like they're really logical in about that those kind of decisions. So hopefully we won't have a problem with this going away anytime soon. Well, and the other problem, it's not just the fact that you're letting these people go and, okay, we're worried about memories and documentation. If you have to look at the people who don't want it to happen, for example, like I was just looking at this article, 
two of the biggest groups for New York, because New York has a really small statute of li- short statute of limitations for child abuse. The two biggest groups against it are the Boy Scouts of America. Of course they are. And the Catholic Church. And that's not a surprise. <laughs> you, you know, you really have to peel back the layers to be like, well, there must be a reason that we have these statutes and, you know, it's legal and it's, you know, it's above our head and... You know, there's good reason there. And it's like, no, no, no. Let's look at why it's not happening. Let's fully understand. Oh, because these people don't want to get in more trouble for more child abuse. Because it's a long, deep tunnel of abuse in those organizations. So it's like, let's get rid of them flat out. The end. It's just very unfair and infuriating. Just like this entire case. (laughs) Yep. Thanks, Josh. These whistles are wet. <laughs> okay. Too much. I'm sorry. I'm too sorry. much wetting too of many. the whistles. I, I, I pluralized you went it. too far. I just thought of like a driblet of water on all your beard hair while you're drinking. <laughs> hey, are you trying to get us horny or something? <laughs> and in heaven, God was like, did someone pray about a dildo? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that that's at the top of his priority list. Or hers. That's true. Or theirs. <gasps> And that's progress. <laughs> Is somebody typing over there? Yeah, I'm done. Sorry. Oh, shut up. I was erasing while you were breaking. You were breaking. You were breaking. All right, all right. And I, I erased breaking. two spaces. Yeah, if someone was to ask, like, a, what word you would use, I would say long. It was two feet long. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's almost like it was sitting there well, menacing or one something. One of those monster ones, I'm guessing, that you see yeah. at the... Not that I've seen at the store. I've never somebody... seen it in those little cabinets. <laughs> nor purchased. <laughs> I like how M instantly was like, no, 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 those things stand up. You can, you can suction them to the, to the shower wall. You can put them anywhere you want. Don't put them on a mirror. But a hardwood floor is great. <laughs> hardwood floor. It was funny, though. I walked him out this morning, and he did a legitimate fart spree of diarrhea. Yay! I'm like, what is happening? It's my own fault. I gave him a slice of turkey on Friday, and I am paying the price. No people food. Oh, my God. That's funny. Is he okay? Like, does is he's Chloe fine. Just have I just to take him out every two minutes. No, he's all right. He he can hold it. It's oh, just that's like so funny. It's just he's, soft. He's getting back to normal. <laughs> yeah, he's soft serve now. I can't imagine that dog having diarrhea. It I feel was... like it would like shoot him across the room. It, it, no, it wasn't big. It was just a little, but it was like an audible. <laughs> it's definitely like a he's soft, soft petite. serve, a melted soft serve. <laughs> Hot peanut butter. Ah. <laughs> it's nasty. Maxie ran in similar Spokane social circle circles. I'll show social circles. Spokane social circles. Spokane shelf church man. Shelter circles. Shelter of Seattle Spokane social circles. South Hill South Spokane social circles. Secret society. There is a photo available on. On our blog. I've never said that in my life. <laughs> I'd be great. It'd be great if I could be dead right now. All right. Back to your story. Sure. You oh, my foam palace. <laughs> <laughs> Tumbled down.
No, I've, I'm I've always been interested in Dungeons and Dragons. It's, and it's I not as hard as I thought it would be. It for obvious reasons. <laughs> I had a lot of things going against me. I didn't need Dungeons and Dragons against me. I see what you mean. I probably could put you in one of those, like, what are those? The, the little wardrobe Ziploc, bags? Yeah, those, those vacuum packs. <laughs> You'd think, but they are not very good. I bought some and I've tried to put, not people, but things in it and they break. <laughs> Scod. That's a that's a a ska squad. <laughs> Stupid. We wear plaid pants and have a lot of jingly wallets, not a horns. Little mini horns, <laughs> mini boss tones that are mighty. Give me a straw and I'll show you how I make no, armpit farts. I've seen it. <laughs> seen it many times. Many I hotel done rooms. it all year. I think I need to do it. All right, we've got straws. I'm sorry, I was not listening to what you guys were saying. That's I'm okay. So sorry. I was you just something. have to break for us to talk. Everyone's yeah. we just ranting yeah. about these people. It was satisfactory. Right. Fat, you say satisfactory? Yes, I did. You son of a bitch! You got me. You, you insulted me. You made a mistake, and you insulted me. She's multi-talented. She's an influencer. Gross. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls.